This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast where each week we take a look at three articles from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Nara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. Today on the podcast, we'll be asking if the Prime Minister is a dead man walking, does woke advertising backfire and is the dinner party in terminal decline? First up, we're joined by our political editor, Jane Forsyth, and the MP, Jesse Norman, who earlier this week expressed no confidence in the Prime Minister in Monday's vote. Jesse, if we could start with, with you. Uh, you submitted a letter to Boris Johnson on Monday uh, in which you gave your reasons as to why he no longer has your support, uh, and you said that you were also informing the 1922 committee of your decision. For listeners who may not have read your letter, you did post it to Twitter, but, but for readers who, who, for listeners who have not um, read it, could you just summarise your points for them as to why you no longer support the Prime Minister? Yes, of course. And the first thing I can say is that if your listeners are not spectator subscribers, they should log on immediately because they can see the whole text of my letter on the spectator. And I thank you for that. As you might imagine, the letter was a very distressing one for me to send because I've known the Prime Minister for a very long time and I've always been friendly with him, very friendly with him, and I've always greatly liked him. And the trouble is that we've got to a point where I felt that the Sue Gray report and the Queen's speech had crystallised a series of public concerns that were now unignorable. And they weren't by any means just about Partygate. And indeed, I thought it was important to broaden the debate so that those wider concerns could be given a proper airing. And they included policy matters, such as the apparent desire of the government to overturn the Northern Irish Protocol, which would be the abrogation of a treaty they freely entered into a couple of years or so ago. It included the Rwanda policy, which I think is deeply unattractive. Both of those policies, by the way, I would regard as almost certainly illegal. The Rwanda policy, I think, bound to be counterproductive as well. And there are other policies. I mean, I think the privatisation of Channel 4 is a provocative attempt to kind of stimulate uh, culture war. And all this felt to me like a style of government which was not really about governing but about campaigning and not really about finding unity and purpose at a time of massively rising household costs and war in Europe, but instead finding dividing lines and points of opposition that were really political for political advantage. And then finally, there was an approach towards the Constitution, which I regard as extremely ill-advised. So the suggestion that somehow the problem was that there wasn't enough power concentrated in Number 10 Downing Street, and therefore a new department for Number 10 ought to be set up, 
and other measures taken to increase the relative power of the Prime Minister, as opposed to what we have always had in this country, which is a proper principle of cabinet government, in which the Prime Minister is merely first among equals, spending powers are reserved to sections of state and properly exercisable through them under a delegated authority by their ministers. And centralising of power is not something I thought was either, again, as it were, constitutionally wise or indeed productive. Indeed, it was more likely to be counterproductive. And so put all of those things together and, and you come, and I'm afraid I did come, to a pretty brutal critique of where the Prime Minister and the government have got to, and I put that in writing, and it's available online in many places for people to see. James, you write this week's cover piece and you look at how following the vote of no confidence on Monday, the rebels still plan to finish off Boris, as you say. What, what is the plan? So I, I don't think there is an immediate plan now, but I think that there is a view that the rules of the 1922 committee, which do not allow another challenge, another no confidence vote within a year, could be changed if the circumstances change materially. Now, some people say, oh, well, the Tories are going to lose these two by-elections everyone expects uh, later on this month, on June 23rd. I think that is far too soon to count as a kind of change in circumstances and rerun the, the vote. But I think if, for example, the Privileges Committee for House of Commons chastised Boris Johnson for not having corrected the record sooner uh, on statements he made that turned out to be inaccurate, you know, that could be a cause for another vote. Or, you know, it, they could uh, come to, to worse conclusions for the Prime Minister than that. And so I think something like that is the most likely scenario, that the, the Privileges Committee brings back up the whole Partygate business all over again and provides new facts. And then set against that is what Jesse was saying. I think there is a concern about a lack of direction and purpose for the government. And if that concern has not been addressed by the autumn, then I think that things will become dangerous again. I also think that you can obsess about rules and changes, but you can't defy political gravity. You know, ultimately, Theresa May should have been safe in that she had won her confidence vote and more convincingly than Boris Johnson did, actually. Yet she was still gone six or seven months later because the situation had just got worse and worse. And I think that, that is the question, which is, can Boris Johnson turn things around? Can he, can he begin to give the government more of a sense of purpose? Or is the situation going to continue to deteriorate? Well, um, Jesse, I wonder what you, th what you think about that in terms of the government or Boris's situation just getting worse and worse. I mean, on Monday night, 41% of, of Tory MPs voted no confidence. Do you think that rebels such as yourself, uh, perhaps, acted too early? And actually, if there had been a vote of no confidence after, let's say, those two upcoming by-elections, which it looks likely the Tories will, will lose, that you might have actually had the numbers to get rid of the Prime Minister instead of the situation whereby he's wounded, but not going anywhere until there can be another vote? Well, I think we need to say a couple of things just to contextualise that. The first is that the 148 votes on Monday was vastly larger than anyone anticipated or feared in the government. I mean, going into that vote, I think the thought was under 100, OK, 100, 120, not good, north of 120, bad, 148, no one considered, no one anticipated, and it would be impossible not to think of that as anything other than a very bad outcome. The second thing is that in any other circumstances, 
a vote as large as that, well over a third of the parliamentary party, three quarters of backbenchers, unconnected or unaffiliated or without another interest, as it were, directly connected to the government, would be regarded as enough for a prime minister to step down. So the reason that we're in this position is not because the vote was too small, it's because the prime minister has decided that he's going to continue to do what he's doing. And I think that's a terrible pity myself. I think uh, what we're likely to discover is that a party which has 148 people who have publicly registered their disagreement and lack of confidence in the Prime Minister is going to be a party that's very hard to bring back together again. And I, I think James has given you know, quite a comprehensive summary of the problems involved. I think it, an obvious other point is that these people, I mean, one calls them rebels, but, you know, that's a framing form of language. You could also call them people with an eye to the principal government of this country. I mean, it's, 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 it's being framed that way. I'm personally, as you will have discovered, not a natural rebel at all. I, I greatly dislike uh, rebellions. I think government should be constructed in a way that avoids rebellions. I like reform rather than revolution, as you will know. I've written books about this. And I voted against the government precisely once in 12 years. So nothing could please me less than to have that. But it is very noticeable that those who are more politicised and more personally disaffected than I am are, you know, organising themselves. I don't think they understood that the size of the vote would be anything like as large as it is. That will give them new heart and new courage. It may also encourage other people who may have held off thinking the vote would be much smaller to come forward. And, of course, it is drawn from every part, every age group and every section of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And that in itself, I think, should be serious cause for concern because this is not the work of a few people with a particular personal or political, or a personal grudge to bear or political axe to grind, if you like. Perhaps we should call the rebels the reformers. Yes, no, quite. Or, or indeed the sensibles. <laughs> James, you, you point out in your piece that what's making matters worse for Boris Johnson is that he has critics on both the left and the right of the party. Is there any way that he can appease both sides at this stage? I think what makes this so difficult is there is no policy solution to the Tory party divide at the moment. Um, this is not a scenario where Boris Johnson could have come out and said, well, look, 148 MPs have voted against me tonight, so I, am, I, I can today say that we are dropping the community charge, and that would allow people to, to come back together. I think the issue is that for lots of these MPs, this is about the person, personality, not policy, and that, that makes it harder to, to bring people back together. I mean, there is also a difficulty for him, which is, you know, there will be lots of pressure on him to do policy over the coming months, but Tory MPs don't all want the same thing. So Jesse was saying that in his letter he cites the Northern Ireland Protocol legislation as one of the reasons why he's unhappy. There are other Tory MPs who, if Boris Johnson said, well, I'm, I'm going to take a different approach to the protocol, I'm going to go back to the negotiating table and take the legislation off the table, would be deeply unhappy. So, I mean, this is the problem, which is you can't see what policy can bind the Tories back together. And I think that, that makes things much more difficult. I also think that, you know, one of the things the rebels are, are not organised, because this is an organic uprising rather than something orchestrated by someone with a spreadsheet. And... 
on the one hand, it meant that the rebels didn't pick the right time for this vote. But on the other hand, it makes it much more difficult because there isn't someone for number 10 to kind of parlay with. They can't come and sit down with someone and say, right, what would come to an accommodation because these people come from so many different intakes and so many different parts of a Tory party. And Jesse, obviously right now the Tories are behind in the polls, but I would say not drastically far behind for a government in the middle of its term. I mean, the the one thing we know about Boris Johnson historically, and something that, that, that you've pointed out yourself before, is that he is good at winning elections. I mean, are you sure that a change of leader would actually help the party regain its popularity in time for the next general election? Well, before I come to that, let me just pick up a point that James just raised, briefly, if I may. Uh, I'm not at all sure that holding the vote on... I didn't know the vote was going to come on Monday. I had no idea, and frankly, I'm surprised that Graham Brady didn't allow more notice. I would have thought a more constitutionally proper position would be to wait until the Monday, open whatever letters there were, consult the government on the Monday, and then hold the vote on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. And I'm surprised that he did it over the weekend let alone over a jubilee weekend. But that is how it worked out. I'm not at all persuaded that it would have worked better if it had happened after the two by-elections. First of all, because no-one knows what the by-elections are going to be like and no-one knows what the reaction is going to be yet. And you've got prognostications of commentators such as yourselves, but, of course, everyone is madly manipulating or seeking to manipulate public expectations and what the political reaction to that might be, therefore, is hard to predict. And the other thing is, of course, that many of those outcomes will already have been priced into people's thinking now when they express their concern about the Prime Minister. Now, in my case, I think we have to judge whether someone is a good Prime Minister and whether an administration is a good one or not by whether they're governing well, as well as whether they get re-elected. And if they can govern well and get re-elected, that's better than governing badly and getting re-elected better for the country, especially at a time of crisis, better for us all. And I think that there are several potential leadership candidates, we don't know who is going to stand or who not, who would help us to retain seats we have won already because of the more effective approach to the delivery of government policy and a much less divisive approach to government and, frankly, a less divisive political persona. And if you don't agree with that, just look at what's happened in Scotland, where I think I'm right in saying that all but one of the non-government backbenchers voted against the Prime Minister. And one of the questions I raised in the letter I sent was whether one really could be leader of the Conservative Unionist Party and be pursuing a set of policies that seemed almost calculated to alienate the other nations that make up this country. And Jesse, given that you have now voted against the Prime Minister, who would you like to see replace him as leader of the Conservative Party? I don't have any personal favourites, and if I did, I wouldn't mention them now. But I do think that there are obviously candidates there who are capable of delivering policy effectively and well, running a team, marking a great difference with what we've had so far, getting away from these dividing lines and culture wars, and potentially reassembling a more effective coalition of voters that would do better, or perhaps at least as well, 
in the next election as what we are presently facing. And don't forget, one of the mistakes is to think of the next election just in terms of numbers of seats and try to just extend in a purely mathematical way what we see at the moment. What we have to recognise is the likelihood of a great sea change. You know, people may just decide that the government is bust, as they did in 1997. If they think that, then very few Conservative MPs who are in anything but the safest seats will survive. That risk, I think, is going up significantly as a result of keeping Boris as Prime Minister. And I'm very sorry to say that, and I wish it weren't the case, but I do think we are increasing the likelihood of a catastrophic outcome. Again, that's something I pointed out in my letter. Well, James, Jesse may not have wanted to, to say then who he might want to replace Boris as Conservative leader. Uh, however, there, there's definitely a... Uh, rumours in the party of certain names going around, even though there's not a formal leadership contest yet. Uh, who are the names that are most popular at the moment in the party? So I, I think this is one of the things that Boris Johnson and his allies, were, an argument that they make continually to Tory MPs, which is you can't know who you are going to get next. You know, Tory leadership contests are always more like the, the Grand National than the Derby because, you know, lots of horses fall unexpectedly. The favourite doesn't win. And normally, Boris Johnson, one of the many rules of politics he broke was that, that you know, he was a favourite who won a Tory leadership contest. But you can't be certain who it would be. And also, you know, events change. You know, Jeremy Hunt on Monday came out and said that he would vote no confidence. And that has probably slightly dented his leadership chances because it makes it harder for him to say that he could you know, unite the party, which is clearly bitterly split on the leadership question. But you're going to see all of this kind of argument about who it is and who it isn't. I, I think the interesting question is, you know, what happens over the next few months? Does someone emerge as you know, a consensus choice? Or are Tory MPs prepared to roll the dice and say, look, you know, we are getting into a situation of, to, to quote um, John Redwood's slogan from 1995, of no change, no chance. And, you know, we, we, and I think that, that, that Tory MPs are, be, are beginning to weigh up that question, which is, you know, you know, yes, there is the uncertainty of a leadership contest, which makes a large number of them uncomfortable. But do they have to change in some way if they are going to win? And I think, you know, one thing which I would say, which I think is pretty certain, is that, you know, even if the rules don't change, Boris Johnson is on probation this year. I think it is, it, it is almost certain that, that, that when this year is up, there will be another vote. And so the question is, can he do enough to, well, I mean, win back some of those 148? Or can he do enough to stop another 32 joining them? And I mean, that will be one of the kind of long stories of this political year. Let me just add one thing, though, there, James, because, again, I, it's almost as though it's impossible not to think of this in a slightly prejudicial way. However you voted on Monday you're going to have trouble bringing the party back together again, right? 148, 41% of the people will have disagreed with you at a minimum of that. And many people who agreed with you may not actually secretly agree with you, but may have been bounced into it by the whips or their own desire for advancement, etc. So the suggestion that to vote one way or the other makes you ineligible for bringing the party back together again is wrong. And it would be hopelessly inconsistent to be a critic of the Prime Minister and not to vote against him on a no-confidence motion if that was how you felt. So I rather disagree with the way you've framed that, again, if I may say so. Though he doesn't have to say if he voted against the Prime Minister or not. You can be certain that any leadership candidate will have to make that clear as part of their leadership campaign. And if they voted for the Prime Minister, they'll have to explain why they did that and, and why any change principles that they are bringing to the table or values 
if they are genuine values of change, are not in conflict with that decision to back the Prime Minister. Yeah, my point is, this is a difficult situation in which people have had to make difficult choices um, and balance loyalties, personal and political, as well as principles about how the country ought to be governed and judgments about how it is being governed in context. So none of this is straightforward. But I mean, the thing which is clear is that, is that this, isn't going to be, this isn't straightforward for any individual or for the Tory party. This is going to be navigating its way out of this on both an individual and a party political level is going to be extremely difficult. Well, Jesse and James, thank you very much for joining. Next up, we're joined by Spectator columnist Lionel Shriver and Paul Burke, who is an advertising copywriter. Lionel, in the magazine this week, you write about woke advertising. Why is it that you don't like modern television advertising? And also, why is it that you think it doesn't work? Well, I mean, we all find adverts annoying. And therefore, I like it when copywriters cut across that uh, and and try to make their adverts appealing. And uh, the best way of doing that is being funny. I think that we're all in accord on this. I think uh, for once, this isn't really that much of a culture war issue. We don't like being preached at. Uh, I don't like the sober-sided seriousness of uh, the tone of a lot of adverts. And in particular, of course, I was talking about the woke adverts, which are advertising not so much the product, but how how lofty and righteous the company is and how they're dedicated to all these progressive causes. And I, I think it's a turnoff. And I, I suspect it's even a turnoff for the people uh, these adverts are designed for. Well, if it is a turnoff for uh, viewers or listeners, why then uh, do companies persist on, on pursuing this, this line of advertising if it turns people away? Well, this self-righteous style took off clearly after the George Floyd murder in 2020. And therefore, this is just, you know, conformity and trying to be trendy. And trying to be trendy always backfires because when you're trying to be trendy, you're not setting trends which means you're out of date. Paul, you've worked for many years in the mm. world of advertising. Would you agree with Lionel that advertisers now seem to want to lecture us rather than entertain us? Yes, they do. And the problem I have with them is, and I come across it a lot, I, I can give you many examples, is, uh, for instance, we, we, better have, we better do this, we better do that, we don't want anyone to think we're sexist or racist. But the people they're trying to impress, or they think they're trying to impress, don't actually exist. <laughs> you know, oh, they might think, well, who's they? I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, there, there was one time I was in Sainsbury's not longer, a year ago, and it said, proud to support the LGBT community. And I know I was being a bit a bit mischievous, but I thought, oh, this is good. Um, what are you doing? Is there a, anywhere I can donate? Because I actually would have done. No, um, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're educating people. Educate me. What are you doing? Uh, well, they face a lot of discrimination. And you go, yeah, I know. Uh, what are you doing about it? And in the end, just because I was, I had that journalistic head on, <laughs> I, I, I went to their press, they directed me to their press thing, uh, their press office, and it said, we are proud to have an all-inclusive workforce, uh, regardless of gender. And you think, yeah, that's the law. <laughs> what are you doing? And um, it turns out, literally nothing. And I don't mind saying that about Sainsbury's, literally nothing. Uh, and, and there's an awful lot, an awful lot of that going on. 
Do you think these companies have forgotten that it's their job to sell us stuff? Completely. Uh, because the, the, the purpose of advertising is to either make you buy something or do something. And as Lionel said, it's it's a request. And, and in, in return, you, you should at least try and shock them, if it's about knife crime or something, or amuse them. I used to do, it's years ago now, Barclay Card as with Rowan Atkinson. And then the whole thing was just amusing people, but weaving the product in, and that was always the skill. So if that skill is somewhat... Being lost, Paul, do you think Lionel's right that, that a key element that is missing from a, a lot of adverts now is humour? I mean, if we have to watch an advert and have that product pitched to us, um, at the very least, if it makes you smile, then, then you've got something out of it. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, but that ties in with a separate issue altogether, which is um, the cancel culture in comedy. Oh, you can't say that. But what these people don't realise is it's nothing new. I mean, we grew up with um, people... <sighs> I mean, the way I'd put it is, is um, and this is so self-regarding, there was <laughs> them and us. Now, we were writers, novelists, um, journalists, actors, agents, musicians, whatever you want. I'm being really general here, if you like, what they would term as the creative Johnnies. And they, <laughs> they worked in finance or they worked in you know, estate agencies and they lived out in the suburbs, played golf. They didn't really want, they didn't really like, they patronised women, they, 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 they patronised black people. They were sexist and racist. But gradually, a generation later, and I watched it happen, they, I'm not saying we were all creative and wacky, but they moved into our industry. You can't say this, you can't do that. And um, they're still sexist, you know, Every time there's a man in an ad, he's, he's a twat, and the, the, the woman is, hey, um, you know, she'll sort it out. And to me, that's patronising towards women. It means you can't laugh at a woman. You know, she's like some protected... Mind. And I've got four sisters, a mother you wouldn't dare cross. And I don't recognise women the way they're depicted in advertising. So, yeah, I think it's their fault. Lionel, you, do you think these adverts almost backfire? You mentioned the, that infamous 2019 Gillette advert that was talking about toxic masculinity. I mean, are these adverts actually kind of being detrimental to a product? Oh, yes. They are unselling the product. I agree. Uh, you know, the column is based on a new YouGov poll of uh, the British and how they respond to these adverts. First off, uh, Britain's hugely polled as preferring that companies behave properly themselves, you know, treat their staff well, don't hurt the environment, and otherwise, you know, just shut up. (laughs) Get out of our face. It's lovely when you catch them out because Cadbury's were terribly yes. right on and they were combating loneliness and, and there was this sort of tenuous thing where they had no words on a bar of Cadbury's debt. Hey, we're donating our words. I preface everything with hey, so you know. <laughs> hey, we're doing... And, and, and hey, lo and behold, uh, they, they'd, they were not evading but avoiding their tax liabilities to the tune of millions and millions of pounds, <laughs> which could have done a lot of good to actually combat loneliness, the very thing they they're talking about. Well, well, yes, I wonder, Lionel, actually, if, if, if you think that part of the reason the public object to a lot of this virtue signalling, I suppose, is that they sort of suspect that it is often very, very skin deep. I mean, we're in 
uh, Pride Month right now, and there's lots of examples you can see on Twitter of companies who've changed their their logo to include the Pride flag f- for when they're based in uh, Western democratic societies, but for their you know uh, um, outposts in and certain other countries that that don't have being the same ideas world. about. I know, being <laughs> diplomatic, my wording. They don't have they don't have the yeah, same exactly. um, uh, liberal ideas about LGBTQ rights. You know, they don't change their logo and they, they keep they, they, they keep very quiet about Pride Month on those particular Twitter handles. I mean, do you do you think the public just has has, has cottoned on to this and so they, they just find the whole thing very uh, very tiresome? The public don't suspect that this is a cynical exercise. They know it. <laughs> it's obvious. You know, people um, honestly are not that stupid. So it's totally insincere. It's obviously insincere. And that's one of the reasons it backfires. It's, you know, it's piggybacking on the times in, a, in, an, in, a, in an over obvious way. So it transparently has nothing to do with their products. Um, you know, Burger King sells hamburgers, but it's trying to get you to buy a hamburger because they support mental health. My favourite is Maltesers, who are com- <laughs> committed to postnatal depression. I don't think that's a funny subject. I think it's a very serious subject. But what the hell is it got? To do? Just set, you know, Paul, can yeah. can you can you take us through? Because I imagine there must be lots of checks and balances. You know, for an advert to go mm. from kind of an idea to actually yes, ending up is. on our TV screens. And presumably, part of the problem is that. You know, a young junior kind of ad exec could come up with an idea, but it could be a bit outre, and then eventually it all just gets squashed, and then you end up with something kind of quite dull. Is that is that part of the problem that yeah. ideas just don't really come to fruition? Yes, because they're frightened of um, people that don't exist. And I know this is completely off topic, but um, I had a really sort of devout London Irish Catholic upbringing. And then people are always, oh, God's watching you. All right, I'm not saying he is or he isn't, but it it reminds me of that. Someone you can't see, someone you've no physical knowledge of is going to disapprove of you. Mm. Uh, And and the... the, um, It has to be legal, decent, honest and truthful. You just can't tell lies or or put the word fuck in an ad because that's wrong, you know. So... Everything has to be passed by someone called Clearcast, and with radio, it's the radio centre. Technically, you could put a poster up with the rudest words in the world, but that would be taken down seconds later. So there are plenty, as you say, of checks and balances. But do they they're, check they're, it for... Will they be checking it for sort of how politically correct no, it is? No, absolutely yeah. not, cause, because it doesn't have to. It just has to be legal, decent, honest and truthful. Uh, it's... The, 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 that has nothing to do. So there's no need for them. There's no legal need for them to do it. And Lionel, do you, do you kind of foresee a backlash to all this? You were talking earlier about advertisers needing to be kind of ahead of the ahead of the curve, or, or at least sort of trend setting. Do you think there's going to be a backlash when we start to see adverts that perhaps are a bit more risque? I hope so. I mean, I, I get the impression that the so-called creatives are not being given free reign, and you know. I have some real appreciation for good adverts. It's a difficult form. Hmm. You know, you're supposed to be selling a product you probably don't give a shit about, right? No, quite. Start with that. And it may be a very boring product that nobody wants to think about. And you also have a, a strict limitation on the amount of time. I mean, even fitting in a... Uh, making a point in the column in a thousand words is not always easy to me. I, I can't imagine how difficult it is when you're dealing with 30, 45 seconds. I'm so not this. it's Talk very novelist. demanding creatively. 
And sometimes it's wildly successful. I mean, I tried to call attention to a, a couple of them that I especially admired. I, I love those money supermarket adverts in which the, you know, the men in suit jackets and ties with tight shorts and enormous bums and wearing high heels. I mean, and, and dancing around with overweight builders. And I, I am amazed that they got the go-ahead for that because it has nothing to do with car insurance and it's patently ridiculous. But well, you remain it, every it word of it. wonderfully and, yeah. ridiculous and highly entertaining and I loved watching them. And I admire that. I, and that's, that's an achievement. I don't care about car insurance either. I don't have a car. <laughs> but I was willing to watch those adverts. No, I mean, uh, you, you're right, apart from the fact that, um, again, I'm about to say this, when I went in to advertise, say there was a place, a place in the world called Creative School, and um, the best people from Creative School would go into advertising because it gave them lots of opportunities to do great work and have fun and enjoy themselves, and as the pressure and it's become less fun and all the rest of it, those people are doing other things. You know, they're making short videos, they're doing this where they don't have those strictures. So the dullards that get through, and trust me, they're dull because I go and mentor at colleges. Not always, uh, but generally they are. They're the people that are coming through. And f from a much bigger point of view, I've spent my life doing this. I don't even mean this, but I'm going to say it. Uh, <laughs> but the, the industry, quite rightly, is so derided now. So you go to someone in a few, so what did you do with your... Uh, Oh, what, advertising, what, you did all those shit ads, those terrible things we see on the... And you think, no, no, it wasn't like that. So they've sort of, they've squandered the inheritance. They, 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 they've spoiled what we used to do, and it's a great pity. But it, it, will, it will turn, I'm sure. I get the impression that there's an element here of vanity, that ad execs now have this notion of their calling, their role in life, which is much much more high-minded than than their real job which is kind of a lowly job you know it's you're just trying to increase a company's bottom line you're as i said you're promoting something you usually have no real feeling for and the these people now think that their their job is social justice and and making the world a better place and it ain't it is laughable because maybe outside of the city and sort of mergers and venture capitalists, advertising still is the most right-wing capitalist industry you could possibly wish to work in. Its job is to capitalise on capitalism and make a great deal of money. That can't change, otherwise there is no industry. And so because they feel guilty and they feel grubby, they, they, I'm going to say, hey again, hey, <laughs> we're changing the... You know exactly what I mean, you're so right. That's what, uh, that's what they're doing. And they're pocketing lots of money. And it, it's it's a sham. It's a shame. Sham and a shame. That's good. Uh, <laughs> well, Lionel and Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And now for our final segment, we are going to be talking about dinner parties. In this week's issue, Gus Carter laments the decline of the dinner party and says that he doesn't seem to be getting many invites. Gus joins us now, along with Mary Killen, our in-house agony aunt. Gus, in this week's magazine, you write about how you don't seem to be getting invited to that many dinner parties. Why do you think that is? I think I get invited to a kind of a fair amount. I mean, this this article's caused a, a kind of big conversation in the office about about the culture of dinner parties and about who's going to them and, and why people get invited and stuff like that. I think I get invited to about one every 
every two to three months. And, and I feel a little bit hard done by on that front. I, I think in my mind, you know, moving up to London after university, that I would be getting uh, a few more dinner party invites. Why I think I don't get them so much, I don't know, really. I mean, I say in the piece, I hope it's not a, not a problem with me. Maybe I'm a horrible bore. Do, do you send out many invites? I don't. Maybe I don't. I know. Maybe that's well, why. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that probably might have something to do with it. Actually, the kind of impetus for this piece was, was, was I had a friend who invited me to a dinner party about two months ago and then afterwards was moaning that, that he didn't get many invites and I think he was he was kind of hinting come on when are you going to do it and so instead I, I wrote a piece because I thought that would be easier <laughs> So you think that the dinner party culture generally it's not just you that's not getting invited you, you, the point of your piece is it not is that the, the, the culture of the dinner party generally is in decline Well I have a sense from having had a look at these, these books that my mum keeps that are in her in her kind of bookshelves which are kind of lists of when she's had dinner parties, who was invited, what they ate, notes on the conversation and stuff like that. I have a sense that in her 20s, she was having dinner parties kind of every week. And having, having kind of spoken to other people as well, I, I, I kind of get the feeling that, that the dinner party might well be on the way out. Mary, uh, what do you think of Gus's argument there? Is, is he wrong to say that the, the, the dinner parties are on the way out? It's tragic, but I think they're only on the way out for 20 and 30-somethings because the demographic, the people of older generations have got big enough houses to have them in and they still have them. And it's tragic because I am lucky enough to have a friend with a large house who lets me give dinners and I invite young people as well. And they're in seventh heaven because they don't have to buy a round of drinks they don't have to go outside to smoke. There's compulsory smoking inside. <laughs> and then uh, we have a cook who cooks for them. So it costs me about £30 a head. And they have about seven hours of happy drinking, smoking and eating. But that's because I can access the premises. Gus, you, you made the point in your piece that one of the um, casualties of this is romance. Is that something that you've noticed amongst your friendship group, that lack of dinner parties is leading to a lack of romance? Well, I think so. I think maybe my friends, when they've tried to matchmake, have been not particularly successful. I suppose that's one of the, the pitfalls of, of attempting to, to matchmake. I think there's also a wider thing about... I kind of get the sense that in, in years gone by, people felt that, that it, was, it was almost a collective endeavour trying to get your slightly useless, bumbling friends together and, you know, getting them married and that kind of thing. And now it's seen as something that you're supposed to do kind of individually on your own in your, you know, in your room, swiping away on, a, on an app or something. I think the idea of a kind of collective attempt to get people hitched has, has kind of... Have, has kind of gone with, 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 with smartphones and stuff like that. Mary, is that something you've noticed as well? Well, all I know is that my age group, all married people, they met in the workplace. And now you're not allowed to flirt in the workplace. And I suppose that apps are, people feel more comfortable sourcing partners on apps. And it carries through to maybe dinner parties, does it? People feel uncomfortable about trying to set people up. Do they, uh, Gus? Maybe they do for that. Yeah, reason. I think they probably do. I think, I think, I think there is. A, it, I mean, I mean, I mean, there's a sense of messiness about it, right? If two people initially hit it off and then 
two months later the relationship falls apart then then you know you as the friend start kind of picking up the pieces and why would you why would you want the responsibility why would you want the messiness of doing that I mean actually Mary I was going back through some of your old dear Mary columns and you were giving advice on how to how to match make people at dinner parties uh, and I was wondering if you could kind of tell us tell us some of the tips of the trade well one of the tips if you're looking for a single man at a certain age find somebody who's you know bumbling and with food spilled down his front and that sort of thing and target him because nobody else will have thought of him and once you've hosed him down he often turns out very nicely That sounds like very good advice. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm quite actually, pro that. Actually, Mary, I wonder how often do readers get in touch with you uh, asking for dinner party etiquette tips? Is, is it a very common um, line of questioning for readers? Yes, because but they're probably older, but there are lots of complaints about people who switch name cards, you know, at the table and people who arrive late for dinners and bring somebody else maybe. There was one person wrote in complaining that she'd invited a girl round and she wanted to introduce the girl to her godson. She invited this girl to her flat for supper in Notting Hill and the girl turned up saying, oh, I've eaten, but I'll just sit with you anyway at the table. I'm someone who actually likes hosting dinner parties and trying to match make my friends, but Mary, I've noticed that there seems to be a there seems to be a scarcity of young men and and more younger more women in my age group who are single. So what what's your advice in that situation? Well, apparently this is because of liberal schooling, because the boys don't work unless somebody is being very fierce and Dickensian with them, but the girls do. So three girls go to university for every one boy, and then when they graduate, there's only one boy for every three that they can talk to. Isn't that it, in a nutshell? I have heard that theory. I've heard that theory referred to as the Blair Bulge. (laughs) The idea of... The the women who went to university from the 90s. Another thing we can blame. Exactly. And, uh, and, and Gus, I mean, you said that you don't host dinner parties of your own. You, you just go to, to other people's. But if you were to host a dinner party, <laughs> um, what do you think you would serve? Oh, God, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, uh, hang on. I think, I think I need to clarify the reason I don't have dinner parties. The first one is that I live with my sister and she's an extremely messy hippie. And I'm blaming the fact that the house is a mess on her. Uh, and the second is that... I could tidy it. I could tidy it. That's true. <laughs> But then, oh, I mean, the amount of work that goes into organising a dinner party at that point. You have to, you know, pick the right people, you have to pick the menu, tidy the house and all of that. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into it if you want to host a kind of halfway decent dinner party. And is, then that, the is that part of the fun, though? Maybe. It probably is part of the fun. But, but I, I mean, the second reason that I don't host them all that often is I only have room for, for six around the kitchen table, which means... It's too claustrophobic. Far too claustrophobic. Exactly. There's plenty of people I would love to invite for dinner, but it's slightly too intimate to just have me and five other people there. Well, I've got a solution. Now the weather is good. Picnics in the park. That's very good. That is a that's that's a good that's good advice. And we do actually have an outsidey bit, so uh, so I can. And you don't have to tidy up. That's really. true. So guys, you really do have no excuse. Yeah, I'm afraid. No excuse. <laughs> I mean, you can have a picnic in the park. One person brings three bottles of wine, somebody else brings, you know, the pudding course, etc. And then you can bring the rugs and the chairs. 
I don't think they move you on if you're having a picnic in Hyde Park or Kensington Gardens, do they, until closing time, which is about 9.30, isn't it? The problem then is closing time. And one of the great joys of a dinner party is one that, that turns into a, you know, early morning party and, and kind of keeps yes, going. Yes, Mary, I was quite struck earlier when you said that this dinner party uh, you hosted at a friend's house goes on for seven hours, which for me, that sounds like quite an incredible uh, dinner party. Yeah, they turn up at 7 and then we sit down at 8.30 and then we carry on talking till about 2 usually. But then I've got this access to this big premises and I suggest the way forward is granny grooming. There are loads of old people with lots of big houses. And so you've got to just groom an old person who you know, make friends with them and then say, you know, can I... Uh, old people want to meet young just say can I start with one friend coming round and then sort of build it up and ask the old person to bring their friends cross generational parties are the biggest success nobody wants to be stuck in a room with just members of their own age group when they're over 20 and the people that come to my parties range from 20 to 80 and everyone says as they leave I love the mixed generation aspect Gus, I think you really do have no excuse at this point. You've got several options now open up to you. (laughs) Well, I think if uh, any uh, elderly uh, spectator readers have large houses in (laughs) in London, uh, they can can send in a letter to 22 Old Queen Street and I will be happy to, to wreck their dining room. Well, Gus and Mary, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.